ask that you would help us this morning as we sit under your word. I pray that you would uh, fill us with your spirit and open uh, our minds and our eyes to see your truth and, and apply it to us uh, in the way uh, that uh, in the way that is meaningful to us. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. So uh, today is the beginning of the Advent season, and Advent is a word that means uh, the arrival or the coming of something. People sometimes use that word Advent to to refer to uh, like the advent of new technology. Uh, In the late 70s, we had the advent of personal computers. In the 90s, we had the advent of the age of the internet. In the 2000s, we had the advent of the smartphone. I skipped the 80s, but I suppose you could say in the 80s, we had the advent of fanny packs. (laughs) 80s is a little, not quite measure up to the rest of it. However, in this season, we're not celebrating a new technological advance. We're not celebrating uh, the, the coming of new technology. We're celebrating the coming of a person, the arrival of someone who is called a Savior, who is the Messiah, who is the King of Kings. We are celebrating the advent of Jesus of Nazareth. And the passages that I read from Isaiah, they speak to the promises of the arrival or the coming of this Savior, the coming of Emmanuel, God with us, the coming of the root of Jesse, who would judge rightly. Isaiah makes these prophecies to Israel in a time when when wickedness abounded. Isaiah writes in chapter 1, in verse 4, he says, Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Isaiah is writing in the midst of brokenness. Israel had become a place where corruption was rampant. Israel had become a place where orphans, widows, and the poor were being oppressed. Israel had become a place where officials loved a bribe. Does any of this go on in our country? The question that I have for us this morning is this. Is there hope in the midst of the injustices and general brokenness of life? Is there hope in the midst of this brokenness? The passage that I read, or the passages that I read in Isaiah are speaking to the prediction of a coming hope. And the Christmas season is about the celebration of the visible appearance or arrival that uh, prophesied, uh, the arrival of that prophesied hope in Jesus. And I want to ask three questions. Why do we need hope? Why do we need hope? What is the hope that Jesus brings? And then how can we be confident or how can we trust that 
Jesus actually brings this hope? Those are the three questions that I want to ask. First question, why do we need hope? Hope implies brokenness. Hope implies a, an undesirable circumstance, situation, or state. Uh, a, a lot of people, uh, some of the ways we use the word hope, we'll, we'll sometimes use it as nothing more than an expression of desire. We might say, I hope that it doesn't rain today. Or I hope the Seahawks win the Super Bowl this year. Used in this way, it's an expression of desire, but one of uncertainty. We don't know if it's going to rain for sure. We don't know if the Seahawks are going to win the Super Bowl, but we hope that happens. We might also use the term not only to speak of desire, but to speak of expectancy. We might say of someone who just got out of surgery, uh, we're hopeful that they'll recover Or we might say, uh, after three successful job interviews, I'm hopeful that I'm going to get the job. And in this case, it's still uncertain, but we have some expectation that that maybe we'll have a favorable outcome. We might also use hope to speak about the only chance of something happening. To the person with cancer, we might say, chemo is our only hope. In sports, we might say something like, the Mariners' only hope of returning to the playoffs is to get rid of all their current players and start afresh. Hope used in this way is still far from certain, but it's used to describe the only possible way a good outcome could be achieved. This is our only hope. And so we use hope in all these different ways, but they all have something common is that it's it speaks to a situation that you don't want. You want some different situation. You want some different set of circumstances. And I'm not sure if it will happen, but I can hope. What are some of the hopes you might have during the Christmas season? Maybe it's stuff. That coat you've had your eye on. Maybe it's a new phone, shoes. If you're me, maybe it's a package of ribeye steaks. For some, maybe your hopes are relational in nature. I hope that there's less family drama this Christmas. I hope that my uncle doesn't get drunk again and embarrass everyone. I hope that I'm not as lonely this Christmas as I was last Christmas. These are the types of hopes that we sometimes have in the Christmas season, sometimes for stuff, sometimes for relational issues. Regardless of what your hopes are, the fact that you have hopes implies that there is something about life that you'd like to change. I think this is true for just about everyone. And when we start to think about things from the standpoint of what God says is true about us, then we must understand that everyone needs hope. It's something that we need to have 
in our life when we face a life of brokenness. We live in a world that needs change. And this is not to say that there aren't some really good things about life. There aren't some really good things about our, our world right now. I think many of us in this room are going to get some really great Christmas gifts that we're going to enjoy. And, and they'll be fun. And we'll like them. Some of us are going to take really restful vacation and use the opportunity to spend time with family and actually enjoy it. I believe there's going to be some amazing spreads on the dinner table. Prime ribs and ham and mashed potatoes and gravy and and any of your favorite vegetables. All of that is good. And I don't want to take away from that. I want us to enjoy all these things as God's gift for us. And yet, pause for a second. Hold on. My notes are out of order, are they? (laughs) It happens. Yeah, it happens. All right. No, they're not out of order. I just lost my train of thought. Okay. I look forward to all of this goodness, and I want that for everyone, but we need to understand that there are still some things that are fundamentally broken in life. And that's what I want to talk about, the the brokenness that Isaiah is speaking into when he writes in Isaiah chapter 11. And so I want to read a little bit of that uh, starting in verse 3 and 4. Verse 3, And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. The first hint of brokenness that we see in this passage is the way in which justice is executed is broken. Okay, it, it's Isaiah saying judges judge with their eyes and what they hear, and as a result of that, their judgment is limited. Their judgment is limited by just the eyes and just the ears. Let me um, give you an example. Uh, a man by the name of Fred Clay. Uh, Fred Clay was 16 years old in 1979 when Boston police arrested him for the fatal shooting of a taxi cab driver. And in that time, back then, they used hypnosis as a way to get a witness to remember what they saw. That has since been debunked. It wasn't in 1979. And so they had a witness or two that they put through their hypnosis program, and all of a sudden they remembered that it was Fred Clay who shot the man in the taxi. The reality was Fred Clay was not the shooter. He did not commit the crime. But based on this eyewitness testimony, aided by the use of hypnosis, the jury agreed 
that he was, and he spent 38 years in prison. He was released in, in 2017 because of a group and several advocacy groups who realized that people are falsely in prison, took up this case, re-looked at the evidence on how they convicted him, decided this is, this is wrong, this is not right. He was, he was judged incorrectly. And even the family of the shooter, or, or the family of the victim who was killed, agreed. Um, the victim's brother said this, I really feel that justice failed Mr. Clay. And in that respect, it also failed my brother. But there was no point in, you know, continuing to have Mr. Clay in prison. Imagine sitting in a prison for 38 years for a crime that you did not commit while the person who did commit the crime is free. And we might say, well, this is just an isolated incident. It is exceptional, but according to the Innocence Project, one of those uh, advocacy groups, there are potentially up to 20,000 people in our nation that are falsely in prison right now. 20,000 Fred Clays who are behind bars, their freedom stripped because justice is broken. We live in a world where there is brokenness. And it's not, it's not just, we can move off of Fred Clay. It's not just major injustices. It's micro injustices as well. Uh, recently, my wife Stephanie started an eBay business. And it's been super fun for her. She's enjoyed it. She resells clothes that she finds at thrift shops. And We've been doing it several months. By we, I mean her. <laughs> I do the books. And up until this point, it's just been a smooth sailing. And finally, in like the last month or six weeks, she gets her first returns. And Stephanie is super diligent about advertising what the product is. She takes high-res pictures. She describes even, she'll come to me and says, hey, there's a little little scratch here like you can barely see it like and she's like should I so she's very diligent and she described this particular item some workout pants like perfectly according to the manufacturer's description and she gets a return request from the customer saying the item's not as described it's terrible and it smells bad it smells like she said it smelled like a, 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 a dryer sheet she takes the time to wash all the clothes before she sends them out. And so she's thinking, no, this item is described exactly how it is. This customer's wrong. And so she, she calls eBay, and certainly eBay's going to see that, you know, Stephanie's record is spotless. She hasn't had any complaints. eBay's going to do the right thing. We call eBay, and eBay says, sorry, you're not going to like what we have to say. Pretty much the customer is always right. And I remember Stephanie saying, this feels like injustice. Like I'm doing the right thing. And this is not a big injustice. This is like a micro injustice in the grand scheme of things. But these are the types of things that happen all the time. Like the, the snide remark you get at a, I don't know, at a cash register. Someone who's just mean to you for no reason. Like these little things that happen like, 
is someone watching what's going on? Is someone looking? Does someone care? Is there someone who would actually judge rightly in all these micro injustices and the major injustices? There's brokenness in this world. And I'm, I'm a firm believer that these things happen to remind us that this is not heaven yet. That there is a better place. There's a better kingdom. And we're not fully in it yet. It reminds us that we need hope that there's better days ahead. Not only is justice broken in this world because of imperfect rules of judgment, but there's simply evil and wickedness. That's what Isaiah is saying when, when this person comes, when this judge comes, he says in verse 4, and he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Uh, how many of you agree that there's evil and wicked people in the world? Uh, yesterday, I was frantically searching for my wallet. It disappeared. I don't know what happened to it. I, 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 I go through this progression of places where I know where it would be. I, I check the nightstand, not there. I check my pockets and my coat pockets, not there. I check the bed, not there. Under the bed. I check my car, not there. And I'm wondering, shoot, where, where did I go yesterday? I was at Panera Bread. I was at LA Fitness my wallet's probably there. Let me call them. And I'm, the thing I'm frustrated most about is if my wallet really is missing, what's the first thing you need to do? Call your credit card companies. Why is that? Somebody might use it. Right? It's, it's, it's sort of just, it's like a fish in water. It's just we know that's the case. There's people out, not everyone is going to see and go, oh, well, let me figure out how to mail this back or let me report it to the authorities. We know that oftentimes people will say that and finders keepers, losers weepers. Hey, let me get in a few, a few uh, purchases for Christmas before they shut it off. And, and so we just know instinctively it's why we have locks on our doors. We know that there's evil in the world. We know that the world is not the way it ought to be. There's brokenness. There's evil. Uh, in our neighborhood, there's packages being stolen, like cars, random cars. Now, these days, I, I love to watch the YouTube videos of the fails. That's my favorite thing. Because we all just like, we don't want our stuff stolen. We want to feel like the world's an okay place, and yet we know it's not. And so we watch YouTube videos of fails of people who break their legs after trying to steal a package. Sorry I get delighted out of that. I know that I should probably repent of it, but. So we're broken. But then our hope is that we can fix it. Our hope is that we can fix it, for some of us. Um, Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13 says this. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. This is an interesting pattern. 
The, the first sin is we've forsaken God. But then we pile on to that sin by thinking we can fix it ourselves with broken cisterns. That's our idea of fixing the problem. We, we forsake the Lord who has all the living water that we need, and we say, nope, we'll get the water ourselves, we'll fix it ourselves, but we're holding a pot that has cracks, and so the water just pours out. The problem is we try to fix brokenness with brokenness. There's a couple of ways that we deal with brokenness on our own. The first is that we believe we have the answers. We can fix it with the right programs, the right policies, the right education. And there's a couple of flavors of this. There's a, a, right, a right flavor to this. We're basically good. We just need to keep the bad things out. We need to protect what we have going that's pretty good. And so you get ideas like building walls. If we build walls and just keep all the bad people out, then what we have will be good and we'll, be, we'll thrive. That's, that's the answer to the brokenness in the world is keep the bad stuff out. And that you get your right-sided hope. But then you have your left-sided hope, which says, you know, the problem is not the people on the outside. The problem is that we've, we've allowed people to hurt themselves. And so what we need, there's more laws and regulations and restrictions to remove the things from the people that would hurt themselves. We need to remove their ability to inflict pain. And so you have things like gun control and take all the way the guns and take away all the drugs and replace it with education. And, and that begins to define the hope. You have a right-sided version and you have a left-sided version and I hope I've offended everyone. Equal opportunity. The problem is that neither side is the answer. Not, and I'm not saying that there isn't validity in policies on both the right and the left. Don't hear me saying that, but I'm saying that fundamentally both sides miss the heart of the issue. The heart of the issue is that we've forsaken God. That's a heart problem, not a policy problem. Jesus doesn't come in the name of the Republicans. Jesus doesn't come in the name of the Democrats. Jesus comes in the name of the Lord. Yahweh, creator of heavens, creator of earth. Jesus is not on one side or the other. Jesus is on his own side. And he's come to give us hope that is not based in our proclivity to believe that we're the, not the, just the source of the problem, but the solution to the problem. God says, Noah, you've proved that you cannot solve your own problem, and therefore, Jesus' arrival, his birth, is the signal that Jesus has come, God has come in the flesh to fix it himself. There's another way we deal with brokenness. Some of us say, well, all of that change the world stuff is for college students. <laughs> it is what it is. That's life. Those are the types of sayings that we can, 
we can say and call ourselves realists, just make the best of it. And so we go in life and largely try to put blinders in our eyes to some of the real problems that we see in the world. And I think, I think a lot of us end there. You know what? Yeah, the, the world's bad. There's brokenness. I'm just going to focus on me and mine and just kind of make the best of what I can do. Try to get mine. We might self-medicate. We might uh, practice escapism. And it's very easy in Western culture, especially if you have money, to try to do that. I'm just going to go on vacation after vacation. I'm just going to watch Netflix show after Netflix show. I'm just going to drink, drink after drink. And and in so doing, we numb ourselves to the very real brokenness that is out there because we kind of know we can't deal with that, but at least I can feel good in the midst of it. And that's another way that we deal with brokenness. But I think the silver lining in a broken world is that brokenness of life itself is a grace of God in this, that it reminds us of our need for a hope that can't be broken. And that's what we celebrate. When we talk about Christmas, we're talking about a glimmer of light that God begins to shine in a broken world through the arrival of Jesus, the arrival of God in the flesh for us. And you get a picture of what that new world begins to look like. And I want to continue in Isaiah and look at that picture. I'm going to reread a bunch of it, but please listen and and see the picture. So I'm going to focus now on the positive aspects from Isaiah chapter 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness... He shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him, all the nations, or shall the, shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. The good news is that hope changes from an uncertain desire to confident expectation when, we, when the basis of our hope moves from us to God. And we get this picture of what life looks like when God has fixed the brokenness. We get a new king. We get 
a new kingdom. With that new king, it says he judges righteously. And we get a description. We get a job description. His characteristics, his attributes. He's wise. He's understanding. He's strong. He's knowledgeable. The spirit of the Lord rests upon him. He has the fear of the Lord. This is the description of our king. Is that how we choose our rulers? He also has a heart for the poor and the exploited. God has always had a heart for the poor and the exploited. God cares about the Fred Clays of the world who have been wrongly imprisoned. God cares about the elderly men and women that are targets of those who would try to bilk them out of their money. God cares about the people who are being mistreated because of the color of their skin. God cares about the people who look down on those who are disabled. God cares for all these people who we would try to marginalize and we would try to cast off to the side. God cares about each one of these people. God judges rightly. He will defend the poor. He will defend the meek in this new kingdom that he fixes the brokenness. It's a new kingdom that's so completely different that the the nature of typical predator and prey relationships has changed. And that's what you get with all these animal pairings, right? Uh, Lions eating straw. Lions are... uh, uh, Lions sitting together with calves. Like, that wouldn't happen today. Today, calves are food. Not just for people, but for for lions, for sure. Like, nothing, and, and God says, they will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. So it's just this paradigm shift in the way that prey and predators are related to each other. When, um, Stephanie and I decided to go on an ill-advised hike in September. And we went to Lake Blanca. And it turned out to be like a 13 or 14 mile hike round trip. And we were not prepared in any sense of the word. I had old um, hiking boots that came apart. We didn't have enough enough water. So everything that could go wrong went wrong, including uh, seeing a bear. First time in my life I've ever seen a bear in the wild. And now I know, you know, this wasn't a grizzly. There really aren't grizzly bears in Washington State. Um, but there's black bears. And we, so we saw the black bear. And so we saw, like, let's sneak up on it and, like, uh, pet it. <laughs> no, no, we didn't do that. <laughs> that is not what to do when you see a black bear. Just remember, yell, make noise, jump up and down. Always keep an eye on it. Don't, uh, don't try to surprise it, you know. And uh, so we, we kind of knew that going ahead. We read some reports, so we weren't totally surprised. But we were, we were cautious. We recognized that if we, if we shocked the bear, if there were cubs around, we could be one of those rare instances where the bear attacks. That's just life. That's just real life. You have to be careful. And so what the world that that god is painting is a completely different thing from what we're used to normally we go out we prepare we protect ourselves we watch out for danger because there is danger all around and that was just a reminder that yeah when you go into the woods you need to prepare because there are potential dangers 
Imagine a world where there are no dangers like that. Imagine a world where Isaiah writes, he says, the, 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 the world will be full of the knowledge of the Lord. Like, the world will be full of people who know the Lord. Imagine a world where there's no locks on your doors. There's no need for them. Right? If everyone knows the Lord, you don't need locks. If everyone is a friend, and if everyone is a family member, then there's no need to worry. Sometimes when you're considering to travel, I know, I think first, you know, who do we know in that place? Do we have family there? Do we have friends there? Why? Because we might, have a, we might get the hookup, right? We might have a place to stay, or at the very least, we might get sort of the, the, down, the download on what, what's around there, where should you go, where should you not go? What's a must-see? What's, 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 uh, what, what can you miss? Imagine if, if everyone across the world was filled with the knowledge of the Lord, then everywhere we could go, we'll have friends and family. We wouldn't even have to think about, oh, do I know someone? Like, this is the future kingdom that, that, that Isaiah is painting a picture of, a place where wherever you go, there's people who you can call family and friends, and you will be welcomed. Is this world too good to be true? Is this just a dream? How, do we, how can we be sure that Jesus is really ushering in this world? The reason is because, at least the beginning of the reason, is Jesus is fulfilling prophecy. And this will be in your guides, in your Advent guides uh, it's pointed out, there's a couple of passages, Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, and then also uh, Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. And so both of the passages that I read in Isaiah are prophetic. The first one, uh, Isaiah, which we just read several times, there's this phrase, the, the stump of Jesse, or the, the root of Jesse, and what what Isaiah is doing is, is calling out the fact that the person who's coming, this Savior, this King, is connected to the, the family of David. Jesse was David's father. So whoever this Messiah would be would be connected somehow to this family lineage. And so when you understand that context, then you understand why Matthew starts with a genealogy. Because as you hopefully are in your groups this week, or as you um, go through your devotions, you look at Matthew like, oh, it's a list of names. <laughs> great. <laughs> I mean, I'm just being honest. How I look at them, I'm like, oh, great. I'm going to preach on the list of names. That's not the point. It's not just a list of names, but it was really important to establish the connection of Jesus to the root of Jesse. It was important to establish the connection because anyone, all the Jews, all, all the people of Israel who uh, would have been witness to Jesus, if there was a claim that he was the Messiah, one of the first things they would have asked is, is he connected to David? 
Because they knew the prophecies. They knew what Isaiah said. And so if they could establish that he was, then it's not sufficient to establish him as Messiah, but it is necessary. It's not sufficient, but it is necessary. And so this is an important first sort of indication. The whole indication is the life of Jesus. So as we see Jesus living, he is attested to by power and by miracles and by his teaching of who he is. And pinnacally, when he dies and he raises from the dead, like the whole life of Jesus testifies to who he is, but he also must fulfill the prophecies that the Isaiah, uh, Isaiah and others spoke of. He is the root of Jesse, and you can see that through the genealogy if you look at Matthew 1. So when you read that list, it is a list of names for sure, but it's a list of intentional names meant to show you that Jesus is connected to the line of David. And you see in verse 6, verse 5 and bleeding into 6, Jesse, the father of David, the king. And that's traced through Joseph, his father. That's the point of that genealogy, is to connect him to Jesus. The second prophecy um, that we looked at was in Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 had a very interesting prophecy. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Two things are interesting at least. One, there's a virgin that's conceiving. And two, there's, there's a person that's being called, named God with us. So those are two very interesting things. And if we look at Luke, uh, which was the second passage, second New Testament passage referenced in your guide, Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. And of course, as we'll go through the story, we'll see that the Virgin Mary gives birth and thus fulfills the prophecy from Isaiah. And so as we think about Christmas, as we think about Advent, it is the beginning of looking at the fulfilled prophecy. In other words, God is keeping his promises. He made a promise He spoke that promise through Isaiah, and now in Jesus, he's keeping that promise. And so as we think about Christmas and celebrating the birth of Jesus, we are celebrating God keeping his promise. And that gives us hope. If God is able to keep his promise, and God has demonstrated throughout history that he's been faithful and that he's kept his promise time and time again, then we can look forward to the second coming of Jesus and know that God is going to keep his promises in the future, that he he really is bringing about this, this new kingdom, this new world where brokenness is dealt with once and for all because of the promises of God that he's been faithful to demonstrate that he's kept up until this point. And the last thing that I want to leave us with is this idea of God with us, Emmanuel. The second interesting thing from Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Not only will a virgin conceive, but he shall call, or she shall call his name Emmanuel. 
God with us. The arrival of Jesus signals the entering of God into the brokenness of life. It's like God saying, all right, I'm going in. Like, you see the fire blazing. We've made a mess of everything. We've forsaken the Lord, which is the problem. It's a heart problem. We've chosen to forsake the Lord. We've estranged ourselves from God, and God sees the mess that we've made of everything and says, I'm going in. And, And it's God with us who solves the problem. He rolls up his sleeves. He says, I'm going to get my hands messy. I'm going to get dirty. I'm going to experience what my people are experiencing. I'm going to experience the same temptations and the trials and the struggles. I'm going to be on the receiving end of a lot of that brokenness. Because the problem is not policies. The problem is their heart. And I need to go after their heart. And so God does it personally through Jesus that's the good news. That's why we celebrate Christmas, because God has, himself has come in the flesh through the person of Jesus to fix what we could not fix. He fixes our brokenness by giving us forgiveness. He forgives us of our sins. He heals us of our heart condition that would want to forsake God, gives us a new heart so that we can see God as good. So that we can see him as glorious and and actually want to pursue him. Emmanuel, God with us. And it's not a hope just for the future world. It is a hope for the future world. We look forward to a kingdom where there is no more tears, where there's no more pain, where there's no more suffering, no more injustice. But even now, that hope has real implications for our lives because... This new kingdom is built off of principles, principles of justice, principles of mercy, principles of love. And by his grace, with his spirit, with his help, we can live out those principles now. And by so doing, the church gives the world a taste of what his kingdom is like today. And so when we think about Christmas, it's not just this far away distant thing that someday things will be fixed but in his spirit we can live out that fixed thing that Jesus has done today and so the hope is for then but the hope is also for now and I just want to encourage you that Christmas brings hope that's meaningful that's tangible that we can grab hold of now and it changes us right now but we can also look forward when we see the injustices in our life we can all say you know God has come to deal with that and he will deal with that because he always keeps his promises let's pray Father We thank you so much for your promises. We thank you, Lord, for sending your Son into a broken world that we might have hope that you have addressed brokenness at its core and that even in the midst of a season, seasons of hurt and seasons of disappointment and seasons of frustration, Lord, we can look back to your coming as a demonstration that you are making all things new, that you are making things right. And so I pray that you would help us. I know that some of us have gone through some hard seasons. And Father, 
I pray that those difficulties would draw us to you, to draw us to our knees in pursuit of you, that we would see in you and in your coming hope. And so, Father, I pray that you would open our eyes to see that hope, that you would encourage us that you are building a new kingdom. So, Father, would you help us? Would you encourage us in Jesus' name? Amen.